For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Russian President Vladimir Putin called the U.S. dollar's drop in dominance, quote, objective and irreversible during the recent BRICS summit in South Africa, as Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa formally agreed to use local currencies instead of the U.S. dollar. It's the first shoe to drop. As demand for the dollar weakens, the buying power of the dollar also weakens. That's why Birch Gold Group is busier than ever. Investors and savers are looking to harness the power of physical gold held in a tax-sheltered IRA. Text MONICA to 989-898 for your free info kit on gold. Thousands of happy customers, an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, and countless five-star reviews you can count on Birch Gold to help you navigate transitioning an existing IRA or 401k into an IRA in gold. As the U.S. dollar continues to receive pressure from foreign countries, digital currency, and central banks, arm yourself with information on how to protect your savings. Just text MONICA to 989-898 to claim your free info kit from Birch Gold Group right now. Hi, guys. I'm Monica Crowley, and this is the Monica Crowley Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me here on this Good Friday, Passover week, and of course, Resurrection Sunday coming in just three days. So this is a really blessed week, a really blessed weekend, and I'm so happy to have you on board with me today. This is your go-to for hot liberty, a safe space for all of us thought criminals, independent thinkers, and happy warriors. Don't forget to check me out on social media. On Instagram, I'm at Monica Crowley underscore. And on Twitter and True Social, I am at Monica Crowley. You can also send me an email about this show to Monica Crowley Podcast at gmail.com. Again, that's Monica Crowley Podcast at gmail.com. Okay, next week, I want to tell you I've been plugging this this interview about superpower in peril. We are going to get to that next week. The Trump indictment just sort of threw us all off in terms of our guests and our scheduling and so on. Um, But we are going to cover superpower in peril and the gravest threats facing the United States, both internally and externally from abroad. I mean, we're at a real tipping point here, guys, and it is a very, very dangerous time. So we're going to take that apart next week. I promise. Plus, we've got some other big stuff lined up as well. Um, Today, because it is Good Friday and we are looking at Resurrection Sunday coming in three days, um, this is the good news. And I think we get so caught up in the politics and all of the secular stuff coming at us all day, every day. And these are battles we need to fight. We're going to cover it here in a second. 
But these are all of the battles, the earthly battles we need to fight. The just wars. But I never want us to lose sight of what really matters. In the end, there's only one thing that really matters, and that's your relationship with God. So I thought today we'd spend a good amount of time doing exactly that and keeping our eyes on him. This country was founded on Judeo-Christian principles. This country was grounded in faith. And man, have we lost our way. We have really lost our way, and we kicked God out of the public square. Attendance at churches is way down. The churches themselves not exactly covering themselves in bravery in fighting these culture wars and godless Marxism. So I thought today, of all days, Good Friday, Easter weekend, Passover week, we would spend some time talking about what really matters, and that's God. Because you know what, guys? We're not going to win any of this. We're not going to win these earthly battles. We're not going to save our country without him. We're going to be joined here in just a couple of minutes by Lee Strobel. Lee is a former Chicago journalist. He's a former atheist who really just rejected God out of hand, didn't believe he existed. And Lee then put his journalistic skills to kind of excavating the truth about Jesus. And he was stunned by what he found. Completely changed him, changed his mind, changed his soul, changed his life. And he wrote a book about it called The Case for Christ. It became a movie, which is phenomenal. If you haven't seen it, go see it. It's You can stream it, The Case for Christ. And then he's gone on to, to write a whole bunch of other books like The Case for Miracles, The Case for Heaven. Um, he's really a remarkable guy, very, very interesting. Came out this whole thing from a totally secular atheist point of view. And because he saw evidence right? It's sort of like Thomas, (laughs) doubting Thomas, where Jesus says, Thomas, you know, you doubted, then you saw, then you believed again. Um, He made that journey himself, and he's got a fascinating story, and this is going to be an incredible conversation, especially for this weekend. So sit tight for that. But first, the Monica Memo. If these battles for our country are to be won, We need to be fighting these leftists at the ground level, locally, because that's where the left's power base is and where it grows and metastasizes. The left has understood this for a very long time. You know who else sort of wrote the Bible, so to speak, on this? Community organization, Saul Alinsky. The left has understood for a very long time, going back to the advent of Marxism, communism, okay? Marx and Lenin, they understood that all of their agitation and therefore all of their progress in reshaping countries would start at the local level, block by block, community by community, and then precinct by precinct, state by state. And then before you know it, the entire country is communist. So the left has understood this. This is where community organizing has come from. The left gets it. Remember Tip O'Neill, all politics are local? That was a soft way of putting what the communists are really all about, what their tactics and their strategy involve. 
And our side, you know, understandably, we've all been focused on the international level or the national level and Biden and Congress and yada, yada, all very important. But that's not where change is actually made. And again, the left has long understood that. So we've got to counter it there at the local level if we're going to make these changes. We've recently had a couple of uh, big examples of this. When we fight, really fight at the local level, we can win. And when we win there, it creates momentum to win at the state and federal levels. But we have to start somewhere. Instead of just solely focusing on Trump versus Biden or, or Trump and DeSantis or whatever it might be at the presidential level, no, we've got to focus on that, obviously, but we've got to start where we have more direct control, and that's on the ground. And we've had a couple of big wins just this week. So let's start with what happened yesterday in Tennessee. Insurrection for me, but not for thee. Leftists in Tennessee stormed their capital over gun control. This is coming after that deadly school shooting by a trans terrorist in Nashville last week. You will notice that these protests are not for increased mental health awareness and intervention. Oh no, that would be common sense. You will also notice that these leftists have not gathered for a vigil for the victims. No, they could care less. They are all about the communist agenda at all times. So the protest at the Tennessee Capitol yesterday was about gun control. It's about disarming you. And the liars in the national media don't want you to know this. But two out of the three Democrat House members in Tennessee who were expelled, and we're going to get to that, they voted against a measure that would have fortified schools and protected kids. They voted against that measure. So again, that tells you they don't give a flying wit about the kids. They only care about disarming you. That's the truth. Again, the communist agenda at work very clearly here. So these communists, including three members of the Tennessee House, stormed the Capitol yesterday and, yes, occupied it by lying down, bullhorns, and all the rest, screaming at their fellow legislators in violation of Tennessee law, including stopping official government business. Sound familiar? But of course, only the left can engage in insurrection. And since the left controls all of the levers of power, they did not expect what happened next. In Tennessee, the Republicans control a supermajority. So the Republicans identified their three communist colleagues who had engaged in the insurrection, who also showed no remorse for their illegal actions, and voted to remove two of the three, expel them from the House, and remove them from their positions. The other one fell one vote short because apparently she didn't use the bullhorn or something, I don't know, but the Republicans should have removed all three, but they choked a little bit on the third, but we'll still take it, okay? So these two communists now are out. 
They are no longer in the Tennessee House. They have been removed. Dunzo. Guys, this is how it's done. This is the way. We can't say enough good things about the Republican legislators in Tennessee who had that courage and the political will and the political strength to hold these communists accountable for a change and force them to abide by the rules like everybody else. No exceptions because you're a communist and you're protected by the press and everybody else. No, no exceptions to the rule. No fear. No fear, guys. We've had so much cowardice on our side for so long. This is why we're in this mess. But these Tennessee Republicans, wow. Very rare that the GOP shows this kind of toughness, right? Amazing. The Democrats led a a crazed mob into the Capitol building. They laid down on the ground. They were screaming and yelling. They stopped official business. They tried to use the floor of the House as a staging ground for this political demonstration, okay? And they never thought in their wildest dreams that the Republicans would actually use their constitutional authority to expel them. But they did. And they're shocked. And other Democrats around the country are shocked by this. This is good. This is good. You know, we talk about the madman theory, the madman theory in international relations, where you have an American president who is very strong and is perceived by our enemies as maybe slightly crazy. Richard Nixon did the madman theory very well. Reagan did it very well. But the best, of course, was Donald Trump. Because you want your enemies off balance. You want them on the back heel. Is this crazy American president going to nuke me? That's what you want when it comes to your enemies. And right now, the Democrat Party is our enemy. Because they look at you as an enemy that needs to be removed from society and destroyed. So, game on. Game on. We're going to view you that way. And we're going to take action. So every Democrat, and unless you're in a deep blue place like New York or Chicago or San Francisco, but every Democrat should be looking at this and going, oh, holy crap. Hmm. Yeah, looks like the Republicans are starting to feel themselves. Yes, exactly. Game on. This is the way. Want to know how uh, desperate and panicked they are? Well, the Washington Post ran this headline. Breaking news, in an historic act of partisan retaliation, (laughs) no editorializing there, right guys? The Republican-led Tennessee House voted Thursday to expel two Democrat lawmakers who halted proceedings last week to join protesters demanding gun control legislation after a mass killing. Okay, this entire headline and the entire Washington Post story is all editorializing in favor of gun control and against the Republicans. Meanwhile, the left, the communists, are trying to jail their most prominent political opponent while calling this in Tennessee a historic act of partisan retaliation. You can't make it up. Look, they're going to lie about all of us anyway, so we might as well have the stones to fight back like the Tennessee House. This is how it's done. 
fire with fire. It's the only way. No more gentlemen's rules, okay? You don't bring a knife to a gunfight, as Barack Obama once said. Exactly. We've got to mirror them. Not with the illegal stuff, but with legal tactics like this, boom, you're gone. And yet still, there are so many Republicans who still don't understand or have the stones to carry this through. There's a Republican assemblyman in the Tennessee House named Ed Ra, who was apparently aghast at what his Republican colleagues did. Here's what he tweeted. As a Republican state legislator, I'll say this quite clearly. This is unconstitutional and a disgraceful way for a majority party to wield power. Oh, it's terrible. It's unconstitutional. This is no way to run the government. The left is trying to jail the leader of your party, and you're whining like this? If you don't know what time it is in America, get the F out of the way, you pathetic coward. This is how it's done, and this is how we are going to move forward. We're going to talk about God here in a second, but you know what the Bible also says? Ah, here's Leviticus. And a man who injures his countrymen, as he is done, so it shall be done to him. Namely, fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Just as another person has received injury from him, so it will be given to him. Exactly. All right, when we come back, we are going to turn our eyes on him, capital H, with Lee Strobel, so sit tight. Okay, everybody, listen up. We all want to be healthier, right? Well, to get there, we have to have a healthier diet, which is not always easy to do. I can attest to that. You know, that shredded lettuce in a double-double and the fruit filling in a donut are amazing, but they do not count toward the recommended five servings of fruits and vegetables a day. Sorry to be the one to break it to you, but they don't. I don't always eat healthy either, but I will share that the Mayo Clinic says if you want to help prevent heart disease, lower blood pressure, and cholesterol, eat five servings of fruits and vegetables every day. I don't and you probably won't. That's why I take Field of Greens. Unlike other supplements, each fruit and each vegetable in Field of Greens was medically selected by doctors to support your vital organs, like the heart, lungs, kidneys, and the immune system. Flu season is here, and I trust Field of Greens to help me stay healthy. Field of Greens works fast and tastes so good. It's really delicious, guys. And you'll feel better with more energy, and you'll notice your skin, hair, and nails will look healthier too. I certainly noticed that in me since I started taking Field of Greens. If you don't always eat right and exercise, join me and take Field of Greens. Let me get you started with 15% off your first order. Visit fieldofgreens.com and use promo code MONICA. That's promo code MONICA at fieldofgreens.com, fieldofgreens.com. Well, guys, as I was thinking about this Holy Week, um, and it's also Passover week too, um, but as I was thinking about this Holy Week and today, Good Friday, 
And of course, Resurrection Sunday, which is just a day or so away, I knew that there was no one that I'd rather have on the show than Lee Strobel. Lee is the former award-winning legal editor of the Chicago Tribune, who currently serves as founding director of the Lee Strobel Center for Evangelism and Applied Apologetics at Colorado Christian University. He's probably best known for the journey from atheism to Christianity, which he details brilliantly in his best-selling books, including the very famous The Case for Christ, but also The Case for Faith, and his latest two volumes, The Case for Miracles, and the case for heaven. The case for Christ, of course, was made into an award-winning film, and it's such a beautiful movie. Go stream it if you haven't already seen it. I saw it in the movie theaters, and I absolutely loved it. It's just a very moving and important film to see. His website is leestrobel.com, and on Twitter, he's at leestrobel. And I, I promise you when I tell you that the Lee Strobel Twitter feed is a remarkable Twitter feed, and you should all be following him if you're not already. And we're going to get into that Twitter feed in just a moment. Lee joins me now. Lee, welcome. Thank you, Monica. I appreciate that. I'm, I'm a big Monica Crowley fan, as you know, and so I'm honored to be with you. Oh, uh, well, right back at you. I'm a huge Lee Strobel fan, as you know, and that's it's such an honor and a pleasure to have you with us, especially on this Easter or Resurrection weekend. Lee, mm. you are the ideal guest for today and for the weekend. Um, let's start with your story because your story is fascinating. And as I said, you recount it so beautifully in the case for Christ. Mm. Let's start at the beginning. Yeah. How did you grow up? What was your family like? Because most people are born into a certain religious tradition or maybe no religious tradition at all. But what was your uh, childhood like? And was God at all a part of your upbringing? Yeah, I mean, my parents were uh, believers. Um, they attended a Lutheran church in Chicago where we live. Um, but I was kind of given the freedom to decide for myself what uh, road, uh, route I wanted to take. And so I had three steps into atheism. The first was uh, in junior high school when I began to ask all the questions that junior high schoolers ask, like why would a loving God allow pain and suffering and how could God send people to hell? Legitimate questions, but nobody was willing to really engage with those. So I thought, oh, I get it. There's no good answers. And then the second step was in high school when I learned that uh, neo-Darwinism explained the origin and diversity of life. So God's out of a job. And then at the University of Missouri, as a freshman, I took a course on the historical Jesus taught by a skeptic who convinced me that you can't really trust what the Gospels tell you about Jesus. So those are my three steps into atheism. Um, and uh, I married uh, Leslie, my wife, at a young age. I was 20. She was 19. And she was an agnostic. She had um, just a lot of confusion about spiritual stuff. You know, that's that's an incredible beginning because it it speaks to me in a couple of different levels. I always wonder how people get to the place where they are spiritually, mm -hmm. whether they're a believer in Jesus or any other religious faith, or they get to a place where they're rejecting God in a wholesale yeah. fashion as you did. And so that idea that you got to that place where you ju were just affirmatively rejecting God, yeah. did was was it an intellectual exercise for you? Did you recognize that the enemy was whispering in your ear to plant doubt? 
how, what was your sort of conscious view of what mm-hmm. was happening to you and the decision that you made to fall away from God? Well, I'd like to believe that I just was too smart to believe, you know, the Christian message, and it's a purely intellectual endeavor. But the truth was that uh, there were other factors at play as well. As well, uh, I had a very difficult relationship with my father. Uh, I was an unwanted pregnancy in his eyes, and um, we had a lot of conflict during our um, our years together. And I remember he told me on the eve of my high school graduation, "I don't have enough love for you to fill my little finger." And so um, if you look at the famous atheists of history, Camus, Sartre, Nietzsche, Freud, Voltaire, Wells, Feuerbach, O'Hare, all of them either had a, a father who died when they were young or divorced their mother when they were young or with whom they had a di- very difficult relationship. And the implication is you don't want to know about a heavenly father if your earthly father has disappointed you or, or hurt you or with whom you have conflict. Um, and he, Freud talked about this. And uh, so... I think there were some psychological factors at work there. Um, And, you know, I was a very independent guy. My background is in journalism and law. So I tend to be a skeptic anyway. And uh, I think all of that uh, um, fed into my atheistic perspective. You know, it's interesting you're talking about heavenly father versus earthly father, uh, because I have a very good friend who over the last decade or so has had a very difficult time with his father, Mm. um, who is behaving, his father is behaving in a very, very evil way. Mm. I mean, I I think there's no other way to put it um, in a very cruel kind of way. We're talking about older people now. We're not talking about a father with a three-year-old or a teenage son. And he was raised in the Jewish faith, but he's actually, he's, he believes in Christ. Mm -hmm. Okay. And he said that one day he was praying and he could hear God say to him, "Um, I am your father. It was a really clear declarative sentence. He said, Mm -hmm. you know, you're spending all this time worried about your earthly father. I am your father. And from that moment on, it changed his entire perspective. And and I'm not saying that the pain went away. Sure. Um, it's still there. But, you know, when you when you hear it yeah, so clearly powerful. or in those terms, yeah. right, as you did. C.S. So, Lewis uh, came up with an approach that I found helpful, which is, uh, you know, if you're in this situation, you've had a difficult time with your earthly father. He said, imagine what would a perfect father be like? Oh, well, we all can imagine what a perfect father would be like. He'd be loving, he'd be kind, he'd be generous, he'd be gracious, he'd be your biggest cheerleader. So that is your heavenly father. And uh, when, you, when you begin to look at it from that perspective, it, it changes things as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And when people say, well, I mean, the perfect father doesn't exist. Actually, he does. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> and, and he is. Um, so, Lee, you were an atheist, so yeah. you didn't. Did you simply reject God or did you believe that he didn't exist? I I affirmatively concluded that there was no God, that he did not exist. And um, um, that lived a life consistent with that. I mean, I was a hedonist. I, I pursued pleasure. So I lived a very immoral life, uh, drunken, profane, narcissistic, uh, self-absorbed, uh, really in some ways self-destructive life. I mean, that was my life. 
But um, I thought, well, if there is no heaven, if there is no hell, if there is no judgment, if there is no ultimate accountability, then the most logical way to live life would be as a hedonist. You just pursue pleasure. Uh, the problem was everything let me down. All these things, I was always after the perfect high, you know, and and everything let me down. And so I had a lot of rage inside of me, a lot of anger inside of me. And um, so even though I was very successful, I was legal editor of the Chicago Tribune. I was winning awards for investigative reporting. Um, uh, and yet on Saturday night, I was literally drunk in the snow in an alley. So, I mean, I was kind of living two lives. That's a really important point about the spiritual void. And I want to ask you that, but it, literally I'm looking at my notes right now for this interview, Lee, and I had written down, what was your life like as an atheist? Did you consider yourself happy, content, and fulfilled? And you're saying clearly not. Maybe you right. thought you were, but there was always some spiritual void gnawing at you. Could yeah. you put your finger on what it was at the I time? I really couldn't. I, I, I didn't know what was missing. I just thought, you know, the next high, the next uh, experience of pleasure is going to make me happy. And, uh, and nothing came through. Everything let me down. And uh, it affected my family. I mean, I remember when my daughter was just a little toddler, if she was alone in the living room playing with some toys, and she heard me come home from work through the front door, her natural reaction was just to gather her toys and go in the room and shut the door. I mean, is he going to be drunk again? Is he going to be yelling and screaming and literally kicking holes in the wall of the living room that I did in fits of rage? Um, you know, at least it's quiet uh, in here. And, and that's the ugly truth about my life. Yeah. You know, a lot of people who go through what you went through, they, they, they understand that there's something missing, but they yeah. can't quite put their finger on it. And if anybody raises God, to them, they, they get very aggressive yes. and defiant in rejecting God. No, that's yes. not what's wrong with me. If only I can get a better job. If only I can make more money. If only, oh, well, next weekend, hanging out with our friends, doing drugs, whatever, that, that'll yeah. make me happy. Yeah. Did you, were you sort of militantly against anybody who suggested God as an option? Yeah, I remember uh, the lawyer for the uh, Right to Life organization in Illinois, and I used to ride the train together downtown and uh, get into these very uh, aggressive arguments about uh, the the uh, Right to Life movement. And because I didn't believe in God, I did. I was a big advocate of abortion. And um, so it came out that way. But when my wife um, met a woman who was a Christian, and they became best friends, and uh, she came to me one day and gave me the bad news that she had become a Christian. Um, I, I began to see some positive changes in her character and in her values. And, and that kind of pulled me toward faith. But at the same time, I wanted the old Leslie back. And, and that's what prompted me to take my journalism training and legal training and begin to really investigate, is there any credibility uh, to Christianity. And I tried to do that like an umpire at a baseball game. It was a waste of time if I went into it in a biased way. I, I thought, you know what, I'm going to call a ball a ball and a strike a strike. I'm, I'm just going to investigate. I'm sure I'm going to find that that the resurrection is just a, a, myth, uh, a mythological uh, invention and legendary, and that'll destroy Christianity. Um, but that's not what I found. <laughs> You know, I've had these conversations about faith with people like Kirk Cameron and yeah. Carrie Prejean Bowler and so on. And it's amazing because the, the, the one thing 
well, there are a couple of things that you all have in common, but one of them is that God sent you an important person in your life, a spouse or someone that turned into a spouse. And and God works sometimes in not so mysterious ways, which is <laughs> he sent you a pretty woman to get yeah. your attention and then softened her heart yeah. as a way of bringing you along. I, I just wanted to make that statement because I, I recognize it. I can see it when people tell their stories like, like yeah. your story, right? She, she's really the hero of the story. I mean, God's the real hero, but she's the hero in the sense that you know, she lived out her faith in a very difficult situation because I was a great, I would, I, I got mad if she went to church. Um, I would uh, criticize her when I would see her reading the Bible. And it was tough for her as a new Christian to uh, live out her faith in, in the same house as, a, as an aggressive atheist. But because she was faithful and because I saw these subtle but very real changes in the way she related to me and the children. Um, it, it was winsome and it was attractive and it began to pull me in the direction of faith. When you see a real Christian, somebody who really believes in Jesus Christ as their personal savior, they have a sense of peace, a sense of yeah. shalom over them mm-hmm. that other people don't have. Is that yeah. what you saw in your wife? It is. Yeah. Uh, The way she would, um, she was always a very loving person, but the way she would um, treat me and the children was different. And it's subtle. I mean, I I, I can't even put it into words, but there was a a quality to her that was uh, developing as she followed Jesus that uh, I couldn't ignore. And, um, um, you know, my first reaction when she told me she'd become a Christian was divorce. I was going to walk out. Um, but I was glad I stuck around because I saw those positive changes at the same time, though, I wanted the old Leslie back. I wanted her old life back. And, and I thought, you know, I was a journalist. I'd seen plenty of dead bodies. I'd never seen any come back after three days. So I figured I could disprove the resurrection. (laughs) Give give me a weekend and I can disprove the resurrection. You know, I mean, Hey, I got a degree from Yale law school. I can investigate anything. And, um, (laughs) so I was, I was shocked when, uh, I began to apply my legal and journalism training to the historical record and how it withstood investigation and invited investigation and and had answers to the tough questions. It absolutely blew me away. So you did two re- years of research as yes. an investigative reporter. You approached it not from a spiritual or faith-based angle, but from an, a real intellectual and yeah. professionally rigorous angle. So you do two years of research into yeah. Jesus. Tell us what you found, and maybe, maybe because this is a big question, yeah. but maybe start with Lee the uh, historical Jesus, and then there's the Son of God Jesus. So how did you find those two? And then how did you reconcile those two? Yeah, I mean, I was told that the God, uh, the Jesus of um, history and the Jesus of faith were two different uh, entities, that uh, the Jesus of faith was based on legend and mythology, um, wishful thinking, make-believe, whereas the Jesus of history, uh, we had very little evidence of, and he certainly never claimed to be God and certainly never returned from the dead. Um, But as I looked into it, what I found was um, four areas that convinced me that Jesus not only claimed to be the Son of God, but backed it up by returning from the dead. And that's important that he made that claim. You know, at one point, he gets up before a group and he says, I and the Father are one. And the Greek word there for one is not masculine, it's neuter, which means Jesus was not saying I and the Father are the same person. He was saying I and the Father are the same thing. We're one in nature. We're one in essence. 
And the audience understood what he was saying because they, they picked up stones to kill him. They said, you, you're just a man and you're claiming to be God. So Jesus claimed to be God. But so what? I could claim to be God. You could claim to be God. Anybody can claim to be God. But if Jesus claimed to be God, died, and then three days later rose from the dead, that's pretty good evidence he's telling the truth. Yes. So there's there's kind of four areas I looked at. I'll just ripple through really quickly. Um, number one, um, and they all begin with the letter E because Easter begins with E, so it's easy to remember. The e, uh, first E is execution, that Jesus was truly dead after being crucified. And we have, we have, you know, even the atheist historian Gerd Ludemann says it's indisputable that Jesus was dead after being crucified. But no less of a source than the Journal of the American Medical Association carried an investigation into the death of Jesus and said clearly the weight of the historical and medical evidence indicates that Jesus was dead even before the wound to his side was inflicted. So the first E is for execution. He was dead. Second E stands for early accounts. You know, I used to think that the resurrection was a legend that developed maybe 100, 150 years after the life of Jesus. But we have a report of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that includes named eyewitnesses and groups of eyewitnesses that has been dated back by scholars to within months of his death. Wow. I mean, that, that, that is historical gold. I mean, yeah. it's far too quick to write it off as a legend. The 30 is for empty, the empty tomb. And the biggest fact on that is that even the opponents of Jesus implicitly admitted the tomb was empty. Everybody had conceded it was empty. And then fourth, eyewitnesses. You know, most of what we accept as being true about the ancient world is based on one source or maybe two sources of information. But for the conviction of the disciples that they encountered the resurrection of Jesus, we have no fewer than nine ancient sources inside and outside the New Testament confirming and corroborating the conviction of the disciples that they encountered the risen Jesus. That is an avalanche of historical data. And so that's the kind of evidence that I was able to dig into as a, as, as a, a legally trained journalist and, and really investigate and test it. And just as you would test any ancient document to determine whether it's telling the truth. And when I did that, I remember sitting back one day, it was November the 8th of 1981, and, and I thought, you know, a good juror reaches a verdict. And, and I said, the evidence is in. I need to reach a verdict. And I remember I reviewed the evidence one last time. And then I kind of stepped back and said, wait a second. In light of this avalanche of evidence that points so powerfully toward the truth of Christianity, it would take more faith to maintain my atheism than to become a Christian. <laughs> <laughs> and so the scales just wow. kind of went that way. And, and that's what brought me to faith in Jesus. Wow. It really is. It's an incredible story. And again, you guys, if you have not seen The Case for Christ on film or in Lee's uh, book version, you got to go check out this story. Lee, I'm going to ask you to please hang tight because we've got a lot more ahead. Stand by. First, though, guys, as we fight this battle, we still want to look good, right? We all want to look our best. Don't risk taking drastic action to look your best when you can get the best skin of your life from GenuCell. Nothing works like GenuCell because it's a family recipe for over 20 years, made by a compounding pharmacist in small batches and always safe, cruelty-free, and natural. I've been using GenuCell products for years, and I love them. Right now, go to GenuCell.com slash Monica and save over 70% off GenuCell's most popular package, featuring their Ultra Retinol and Dark Spot Corrector. Don't wait. Go to GenuCell.com slash Monica, GenuCell.com slash Monica. 
All orders are upgraded to free shipping, and every subscription order includes a complimentary spring spa box with three spa essentials, also free. But just for a limited time, so visit now. Genucel.com slash Monica. That's G-E-N-U-C-E-L, Genucel.com slash Monica. Again, Genucel.com slash Monica. We're coming right back. Okay, we're back with Lee Strobel. So the evidence of Jesus pre-crucifixion, and yeah. then I want to drill down a little bit more into the resurrection, sure. but pre-cru- uh, pre-crucifixion, the yeah. evidence of his ministry, yes. the evidence of the miracles he performed, yes. the evidence of his travels, okay, across yes. Israel, yes. The, the evidence of his disciples, the evidence mm-hmm. of his massive sermons. Did you excavate any of that as well? Yes. Absolutely. I mean, there is a, 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 a huge amount of historical data concerning Jesus. In fact, um, uh, if you just looked at sources outside the Bible, non-Christian sources outside the Bible, there's a lot of data about the, um, the life teachings, miracles, death of, of Jesus and resurrection. Um, the historian Gary Habermas did a book called The Verdict of History. It was later renamed The Historical Jesus. And in that book, he documents 110 facts about the life, teachings, miracles, death, and resurrection of Jesus from sources outside the Bible, confirming and corroborating who he is. And so we have a lot of historical data. And, and frankly, I believe that the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, uh, are, are reliable sources of information. They're, they're in a category not of ancient mythology. The category historically for them is um, um, ancient biographies. They are, they are biographical works that were intended to report on what actually took place. And you can take the tests that you would normally use to weigh whether an ancient document is telling the truth and apply them to the New Testament, and they, it passes with flying colors. So we have good reason to believe that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, first of all, were written, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, within um, the early days of when Jesus' followers were still around. Um, You know, um, Luke uh, wrote the book of Acts as well as the Gospel of Luke. The book of Acts, we can date to about 62 AD. The, The Gospel of Luke comes before that. Jesus was put to death in 30 or 33 AD. Um, Luke quotes from Mark, making Mark even earlier. Um, there are creeds and hymns of the early church that predate all of this that are embedded in the New Testament. I mean, we have good historical reasons for believing that the accounts of the life, uh, death, teachings, and resurrection of Jesus are solid. It's, it is so amazing. And I've been to Israel many times and up north um, in the, the Galilee area, the yes. Nazareth area. And it's just breathtaking when you're walking where you know Jesus once walked. Yeah. Um, let's turn to uh, what we're marking this week, Lee, yes. because it's always amazed me as a believer that in the space of just one week, seven days, Jesus went from being hailed upon his entrance into Jerusalem, what we yeah. now know as Palm Sunday, to being humiliated, sentenced, whipped, and nailed to the cross. Yeah. Can you please talk to us about what you discovered about that week that changed the world? Oh, my goodness. It, it you know, isn't that something that um, something that can happen that happened 2000 years ago has transformed history. 
And, um, you know, I look at the um, reality of what took place on um, Good Friday. Uh, I look I look at the reality of the crucifixion. Did you know that the crucifixion was such a horrific form of execution? They had to invent a new word to describe the pain that it caused. The word excruciating in the Latin literally means out, out of the cross. Oh, uh, wow. They had to invent a new word. I mean, it was it was horrific. You know, a lot of people I know saw The Passion of the Christ, the movie that showed the whipping of Jesus. And yet that didn't even capture the full horror of that experience. Um, let me quote to you a um, an actual eyewitness to a Roman flogging. He said, the sufferer's veins were laid bare and the very muscles and tendons and bowels of the victim were laid open to exposure. I mean, I talk to medical experts who see the clues in the in the documents of the New Testament that say that Jesus was in hypovolemic shock, great sh shock from a great loss of blood after the beating he endured. And then he was crucified. And, and I used to wonder, well, what kills you in crucifixion? What's the cause of death? And I learned um, it, it, is, it is asphyxiation. Because mm -hmm. when, when you're in that position on the cross, it puts incredible stresses on your chest muscles, and it locks your lungs into the inhale position. So in order to be able to continue to breathe and stay alive, you have to somehow lessen that stress on your chest. The only way to do that is to push up with your feet. Of course, now your feet have a, have a, um, a, a spike driven through them and your bloody back is scraping against the coarse wood of the cross. You have to push up, relieve that stress, exhale, inhale again, settle down on the cross, and then keep going through that motion until you can no longer do that. And ultimately, you die of the effects of asphyxiation, which causes um, your heart to cease functioning. Um, you know, it, it's just a horrific thing that Jesus endured, and yet he did it willingly. Um, and, and I remember I remember interviewing one of the world's leading experts on this topic um, and um, asking him in the end, I said, well, why did he do it? He knew what was coming. Why did he do it? And the only word he could offer was love, was love, because mm. it was through this that Jesus paid the penalty that we deserve for the sins that we've committed so he could offer forgiveness and eternal life as a free gift of his grace. Mm. And um, so it's really the love of God that motivated him to go through this horror of um, the crucifixion. It's so incredible whether you see it depicted on film, you read it in the Bible, it's just, it just is breathtaking yeah. when you read it um, with open eyes and an yeah. open heart and open spirit. Um, you know, when you said he went willingly, he did. But yeah. I think about that moment the night before yes, where he said, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass for right. me. Right. Um, and, you know, throughout Satan is right by his side, whispering in his ear, you don't have to do this. I can alleviate the pain, yeah. you know, I, I whispering constantly. And yet yeah. he knew what his mission was from his heavenly father, didn't he? That's right. And, you know, it's in, I used to think, well, I don't believe this whole story about the Garden of Gethsemane because the, uh, the Gospels tell us that he sweated blood. I said, give me a break. That's just a literary, you know, trick to try to talk about how how anguished he was at this moment. And yet, I was able to find about seventy examples in history uh, from medical journals uh, where people have sweat blood. 
Uh, it's a known medical condition called hematidrosis. And it, what happens is that when you're under great stress, as Jesus was, knowing what was coming under great anguish and stress, um, it causes there's a chemical reaction that happens uh, that breaks down the capillaries in your sweat gland and you have and sweat glands, and you have blood um, leak into your sweat glands and you literally sweat blood. Um, so that's just another confirmation. I'm sure back then the gospel writers had no idea what was going on. Um, and yet they reported it. And it turns out modern science tells us, no, that's, that's a known medical condition. There, you know, science is always there with an explanation, <laughs> right? <laughs> For, but there are certain things that science cannot explain, including, yeah. Jesus performed multiple miracles of yes. raising other people from the dead. Most people know about Lazarus, but he right. did it. He did it a number of times. Yes. And then he himself with the resurrection. Um, you know, you mentioned about how the tomb was empty. Yes. When they went to, to go look and the tomb was empty. And the story about the Roman centurions posted outside and yeah. then the, the stone is rolled away. And immediately the rumor begins, somebody made off with the body, right? right. Somebody got in there and stole the body. And of course right. he wasn't resurrected. And that also screams the enemy, right? That's, that is Satan planning doubt that somebody got in there and stole the body. And yet, ironically, it was affirmation that the tomb was empty because they never said baloney. What do you mean Jesus had risen? The body is still in the tomb. They didn't say that. What they said was somebody stole the body. They're implicitly admitting the tomb is empty. Right. So uh, unwittingly, they're confirming the fact that the tomb was empty. And, and so that gives us one more bit of evidence that it was true. Now, I used to think as a skeptic, wait a minute, I can tell you why the tomb was empty. The body was never in it. Because don't you know that one of the horrors of crucifixion is they wouldn't allow you to be buried. Your body was thrown to the dogs and eaten by the dogs. And uh, that's what I, that's how I thought I could explain away the empty tomb. Well, I ran into a problem called archaeology because archaeologists have actually discovered the bodies of crucifixion victims that have been buried. In fact, one of them uh, still had the spike driven through his ankle bone and a bit of the olive wood of the cross still attached. Uh, we've had at least two discoveries of people who had been uh, crucifixion victims who were buried. And so we, and, and Roman law did allow under certain circumstances, the burial of execution victims. So um, my, my attempt to try to get around the empty tomb was unsuccessful. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when you, you can't really square the circle because no, that's it right. is what it is. Yes. What do you make Lee of the earthquake? So yeah. when the moment that Jesus dies, yeah, uh, he says it is finished. Yes, meaning what he was sent to do. Yes. So his life, but it has a bigger meaning. What he was sent to do. This part of the story, it is finished. And at that moment, you get a massive earthquake that yeah. just rents apart the earth, and everybody scatters. Right, everybody is is panicked because this earthquake is so massive. What do you make of that moment? Well, we have, I actually footnote in my book, The Case for Christ, um, the um, historical data from outside the Bible that confirms that an earthquake did indeed take place. Uh, so we do have sources outside the Bible confirming that. Not only that, but if you recall, while Jesus was on the cross, the earth went dark 
for a, a period of time. And I used to think again, oh, that, look, that just shows that this is made up because don't you think somebody would have noticed if the earth went dark? Well, we actually have evidence from outside the Bible. We have a document that was discovered. It was written by um, a guy named um, uh, Africanus uh, in the year 221 AD, where he's referring to earlier documents that were report. He was replying to an earlier document that said, oh, yeah, we know the earth went dark, but um, we can explain that away because it was just an eclipse of the sun. And here we have a later person referencing that early account and saying it couldn't have been an eclipse of the sun because we know when eclipses take place and that was would not have been when an eclipse actually occurred. So again, for the earthquake and for the darkness that took place over the earth, we do have sources outside the Bible that confirm that these things actually occurred. And I, I mention those and document those in my book, The Case for Christ. What do you make, Lee, of the role of women in this yeah. story? And in particular, Jesus's mother, Mary, but also yeah. Mary Magdalene. Very important. And here's why. Um, one way that historians try to determine if a, doc a document is telling us the truth is called the criterion of embarrassment. And what this means is if you're reading an ancient document, and you're wondering, are they telling me the truth? If they're saying something that hurts their own case, that is embarrassing to themselves, they're probably telling the truth. Because if they're going to make it up, they're not going to make up something that's going to embarrass themselves or hurt their own case. Well, in the, in the first century Jewish and Roman culture, the testimony of women was not considered to be reliable. They were generally not allowed to testify in a court of law. Uh, Josephus uh, writes about this in terms of Roman culture. The Jewish Talmud mentions it. Uh, let not the um, testimony of women be admitted. Um, and so, um, and yet, who discovers the tomb empty? It was women. And the, the, the Gospels report this. Why would they say that women discover the tomb empty when it hurts their case? And it did hurt their case because in the second century, critics of Christianity attacked Christianity by saying, oh, you can't trust this because women discover the tomb empty. So they knew that they would get criticized for this because in that day, this was embarrassing. Why did they report it? They could have said, John, if they were making it up, they would have said, John discovered the tomb empty. Peter discovered the tomb empty. A man discovered the tomb empty. Why did they say women when it hurt their case? Because that's apparently what happened. And they were committed to telling the truth and just letting the chips fall where they may. An historian will tell you this is a strong indicator. They're telling us the truth about the empty tomb. Mm. It, it is incredible. It's just incredible. Yeah. And Mary, uh, Mary Magdalene was the first one to see him when yeah. he came back. Yeah. So that they, I mean, that appearance to Mary Magdalene. Yeah. When just, he's resurrected, what is the importance of that? Well, you know, you, you look at the, her life and what it was like and, and what she had gone through. This is a woman who, who experienced some incredible things. And, and, um, uh, and yet God uses her in a remarkable way uh, to be a witness of the greatest event of history. And it just shows, you know, Jesus uh, honored women. Jesus um, had women followers, uh, not among the 12 disciples, but in, the, in the, the other ones who were followers and made contributions to what he was doing and, and who were um, committed to him and so forth. Um, highly, highly unusual in the, that culture. Um, but he honored women. And I think the fact that it was women who discovered the tomb empty uh, was God kind of winking at us and saying, um, you know, women are ontologically equal to men. 
And, um, and this is just another way I just want to show you how I honor them. Yes. And that I have sent my son for everybody. That's right. That's not right. just men in a patriarchal system, but right. everybody. And, you know, the fact that Jesus, he constantly says, look, you believe I'm not here for you. Yeah. <laughs> I appreciate yes. your faith, but I'm not here for you. Right. I'm here for the prostitutes and the yes. tax collectors and those who are suffering and those least among us on earth, because who is last shall be first and whose first shall be last. Right. My ways are not your ways in, in Isaiah. Yes. Um, so it's, it is, it's amazing. I I've always loved Mary Magdalene. She's always yes. been a real heroine of mine. Yeah. Um, and Let's, Mary, I mean, the mother of Jesus, I mean, a lot of Protestants, you know, uh, don't, I don't think give the honor to Mary, the mother of Jesus, the way the Catholics do. And I know there's controversy uh, both ways, but man, um, to be chosen by God Almighty to be the bearer of um, the Son of God who would save Israel and the world, um, th this, this is a very, very special human being. Oh, just, yeah, incredible. We've got to hit this quick break, but we will be back with much more with Lee Strobel. We're back with Lee Strobel. His latest book is called The Case for Heaven. Let's talk for a moment, Lee, if we could, about the Romans in yeah. this uh, passion play, literally passion play. When I was on the Isle of Capri a yeah. couple of years ago um, off the Amalfi Coast, that was the location of Tiberius, the Roman emperor's summer estate. And it's at the very top of the Isle of Capri. So if you're ever yeah. on Capri, go up. I mean, it's a long walk uh, and you go up, but you're literally at this incredibly high peak overlooking mm. the Mediterranean. You can see the Amalfi Coast and roam off in the distance. But Tiberius, as emperor, used to go to that retreat and, and be there. And they're just, they're ruins there now, but it's fascinating. And I remember walking the ruins and thinking, oh man, you know, Tiberius was here at the time of Jesus's life and his ministry. Yeah. And Tiberius must have been pulling his hair out while he's trying to enjoy his summer vacation <laughs> on Capri yeah. because he kept hearing these reports of the Nazarene who's causing trouble in that distant crazy outpost yeah. um, in the Middle East. And, you know, he's trying to run the Roman Empire and he hears about this troublemaker. So talk to us a little bit about Tiberius, if you could, and also the role of Pontius Pilate, who was yeah. the Roman prefect of the area. He had his hands full with revolts and people driving him crazy. And now he's got to deal with Jesus of Nazareth. And the, the stories and the depiction of Pontius Pilate is like, okay, you know, I, I have so much on my plate. What now? Now I got to deal with this guy. And right. then of course, the biblical reference to I wash my hands of this. Well, Pilate was a brutal, brutal ruler. And um, some people say, you know, in the biblical account of how he lets the crowd kind of decide to let Barabbas go, um, that he would never have done that. Um, and yet what people ignore is a, a short time before this, he got in some hot water. Um, because he had resisted, uh, he wanted some certain standards put up, um, like flags, um, that the Jewish leaders opposed. And there was a, a, a real um, controversy that took place. And he, he was 
he, he, it was it was tough going there for a while for Pilate. And uh, so it makes historical sense that he was willing to try to placate uh, the Jewish leaders of the day who wanted Jesus executed. And and uh, so I think that explains some of his behavior. But, uh, you know, he asked the famous question, uh, what is truth? You know, um, Jesus, of course, of course, said he's the way, the truth and the life. And no one comes to father except through him. And, and Pilate's famous for asking that question, what is truth? And of course, we know from Aristotle and Plato and 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 contemporary philosophy, what is truth? Truth is truth is that which corresponds to reality. And the reality is Jesus not only claimed to be the Son of God, he backed up that claim by returning from the dead. And so by asking what is truth, um, Pilate unwittingly kind of opens the door to the conclusion that Jesus is who he claimed to be. Jesus is the truth. Yeah. Um, and, you know, all of this, once you see it all, clearly you can't unsee it. And yeah. it, when you do see it and you can't unsee it, it does change your life, as you described for your own experience, your wife's experience, my experience. How did it change yours both immediately in terms of, well, well describe to us, if you would, Lee, about that moment, I guess, when you sat back. And you yeah. pieced it all together after two years of research. Yeah. Did you feel a sense of peace come over you? A euphoria? What did you feel? You know, some people have what they call a rush of emotion at that time. I didn't. I had what I call the rush of reason. Um, this just made total sense. And the most reasonable, the most logical, the most rational thing I could do based on the historical evidence was to receive this freely offered gift of forgiveness and eternal life that Jesus purchased for me on the cross. Um, it just made all the sense in the world because the historical evidence backed it up. And it was ironic that one of my heroes when I was at Yale Law School was a guy who was the most uh, successful lawyer in history. Um, he was knighted twice by Queen Elizabeth. He was a member of the highest Supreme Court of his land. He uh, was in the Guinness Book of World Records as the most successful lawyer who ever lived. And he had been a skeptic, like at the time when I was a law student, I was about the resurrection until someone challenged him to use his monumental legal skills and do what I did. This is many, many years earlier and investigate the evidence. And he did. And I'll quote to you one sentence he wrote that summarized his conclusion. He said, I say unequivocally that the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof, which leaves absolutely no room for doubt. This from the most successful defense attorney who ever lived. Um, and, and so I just had a rush of reason. This made sense. This is logical. I cannot not do this. I would be turning my back on the evidence. Uh, I would be committing intellectual suicide if I turn my back and walk the other way. Wow. Well, you literally made your faith your life's work. Yeah. Can you talk to us a little bit about the importance of prayer? And do you have any advice for those who would like to pray and have a personal relationship with Jesus? Because that is really what all of this is about. Um, you know, people, people feel awkward. I went through periods of my life, it felt awkward talking to God, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you have any advice for how people believe, they believe the Bible, they believe the story of Jesus, they believe that he was resurrected and that he is the Christ, but they don't know how to pray, to talk with him and have that personal yeah. relationship. 
you know, it's funny, my, my son is a PhD in theology and a seminary professor, and he's just written a terrific new book called When Prayer Gets Real. Mm. And I highly recommend it. He wrote it with John Coe. And um, their whole area is spiritual formation, which is how do we become closer to God in our relationship with him? And so I think, you know, ultimately prayer is just talking to God. And the, the beauty of the resurrection is uh, Jesus is still alive. You know, he, yes, he, he conquered the grave and he is there for us to engage with. And when we receive this free gift of forgiveness and eternal life in a prayer of repentance and faith, uh, we become, the Bible says, uh, a child of God. And as any child wants to commune with the father, we can do that. And we can uh, pray, which is just talking to God and expressing our hearts. And, and you know, God talks to us. He does it through scripture. He does it through other people. Um, just before we went on the air, uh, Monica, you and I were chatting and God used you, I think, as an encourager to me. And um, um, so God uses people. He uses scripture. And um, um, but I think one of the great joys of the Christian life is that we can we can commune with the Lord and have a, 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 an experience with him. You know, the Bible says that over time, as you follow Jesus, Galatians said, we'll experience in our life over time an increasing amount of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And, um, you know, Jesus said he came to give us an abundant life and, and, and he brings us peace. He says his yoke is not uh, heavy, his yoke is light. And so he is a God who is for us. And, and how could he demonstrate that even any more than going through the cross in order to for, uh, that we might be forgiven and reconcile with him forever? You know, some of the best advice I ever got was when someone said to me, stop talking at God and mm. start talking with him. Yeah, that's good. And, you know, as a kid, you know, you're you're raised in a certain environment and you get on your knees and you say your goodnight prayer. And you're at least in my experience, I was always yeah. talking at him yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and instead of talking with him. And yeah. it's not easy for me to hear his voice. Some people hear it a lot or, you know, it's clear. Um, I don't generally have that experience, but I yeah. do feel a sense of spiritual warmth, yes. I guess, is the best way to describe it when I'm, I'm really praying. Yeah. Um, and the point about, you know, God, Jesus, it, God is a concept that the human mind really can't grasp, right? Yeah. All eternity. And what is right. it like a guy with a white beard in the sky? Right, like, right. All this stuff that we're told as kids or how, how he's depicted. And that is exactly why he sent himself in the form of Jesus in, in the form of a man yeah. so that the human brain could process Jesus, a man standing in front of you, going through a real horror, um, you know, horrible death, yeah. and then resurrected. So we had something to grasp. Yeah, right. That's exactly true. I mean, um, you know, the, the Trinity, uh, God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit is a concept that's uh, hard. It's not contradictory, but it's hard for us to understand. And yet the Bible teaches three things. It teaches um, Jesus is God, the Holy Spirit is God, the Father is God, and there's one God. So there you go. <laughs> exactly right.
<laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> and it's such a beautiful thing when you see it and you accept it. It's literally life-changing, both yes. for this life and for the next one. Yes. Um, so what do you say, Leonor, oh, final moments here, what do you say to atheists today? Do you have atheists who approach you and what do you tell them? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I'm just now finishing a new book that's coming out in October. It's called Is God Real? And um, it, it looks at, you know, 200 times a second around the clock, someone is typing into a computer search engine. Essentially, the question, is God real? Um, a question about God. And so I'm writing a book about that and uh, hopefully to reach people who are spiritually confused or interested or skeptical like I was. Um, and I go through a lot of affirmative evidence for the existence of God. And also I look at tough questions about um, why does God allow pain and suffering and why does God seem hidden from us sometimes and so forth. And uh, so that's my, my latest effort to try to engage with people who are sincerely interested in, in finding answers, because um, I think there are good answers. You know, the Bible says in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, if you sincerely seek God, you will find him. And that's what I tell people who are skeptics. I say, you know, pray the agnostic prayer, which is, God, I don't believe you're there. But if you are, I want to meet you. I mean, you pray that prayer, God's going to answer that prayer. And, mm -hmm. and, and um, you know, I prayed that prayer when I started my investigation. I thought, what have I got to lose? Um, 10 seconds of my time. And yet, maybe if God is real, something will happen. So I just say for people who are skeptical, uh, open yourself up to the possibility. Could there be any possibility that God is real? And then pray something like, God, you know, if, if you show yourself real to me, I will open my life up fully to you. Uh, that is a beautiful prayer. And he does answer back. Yeah. Um, he loves to answer that. <laughs> he he Right. He wants you to come to him. He loves you. And that's another very difficult concept for people to understand that God is love and that he loves you no matter how many mistakes you made, no matter how far off course you might be, how much you've rejected him. He's not, he's not us. He doesn't yeah. judge in the way human beings judge. Exactly. Um, final question for you, Lee. Yeah. As you look around the country and the world, there is a lot of darkness out there. Yeah. There's a lot of wickedness a lot of yeah. demons making themselves known. And yeah. it does look like Satan is just having a field day. Yeah. Can you talk to us about the spiritual war we are in and what it takes to, to really resist that and fight back? You're, you use the term spiritual war, and I think that's what we're in. I mean, we see increased darkness. We saw see also increased signs of hope. And, you know, the Bible says in the end times, things are going to be accentuated even more and evil is going to be more apparent. And yet the, the impact of God is going to be more apparent as well. And so um, I think Jesus is the answer. I, I left my entire career in journalism and said, I want to spend the rest of my life uh, helping people have a personal encounter with, with the God of the universe. It'll change their life and change their eternity. And I believe one at a time, those of us who come to faith and whose lives are transformed by Christ, we can remake the culture. We can remake the world. And you know what? I've read the end of the book. God wins in the end. Um, so there's going to be some difficult times between now and then, but he's still in control. He's still there for us. And uh, when people feel helpless, when they feel confused, when they feel um, ill at ease by what's going on in our culture and our nation, 
remember that that nothing surprises God and that he is there for us and that we can lean on him, that we can draw strength from him, we can find peace through him, and we can make a difference through him. You know, Jesus said to us, uh, his followers, be salt and light, uh, which means live lives that are like salt that make people thirst for God. Live lives that are like light that shine his message of hope and grace and love and redemption and justice that shine that message into dark areas of despair. And as we become stronger salt and brighter light in the 21st century, um, I find there is still hope for, for, um, for our nation and for our world. Well, as Ephesians says, put on the full armor of God. Yes. When wickedness approaches, when evil descends, put on the full armor of God. And I think we'll we'll leave it there because that is that's the message. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's the message of the day for people who feel like things have just spun out of control. And your yeah. message about God is still on the throne. He is in yeah. total control. Nothing is a surprise to him. So, yeah. and one of my favorite phrases, Lee, and I forget where I heard it, but God's shoulders are bigger than yours. So yeah. give him all right. of your worries, give him right. your pain, give him your suffering, and a he famous, will take it on. A famous theologian said to me once, you know, God is a big boy, which means <laughs> he can he can take it when we feel frustrated and, and, and we want to even lash out at God. He can take that. Um, let's be honest with him about how we feel and where we're at. He's a big boy. He can handle it. And, uh, and his love will conquer all. Well, your spiritual journey is just so incredible and it's inspired so many people, Lee, and I know it's going to really inspire this audience as well, especially on this resurrection weekend. So I want to thank you so much for being well, here and sharing your story and the evidence which I, I hope a lot of people will get a lot out of today's show and bring them closer to God. Well, thanks, Monica. Great to be with you. And I love you and what you do. Well, right back at you. Truly, it's been an honor and privilege to have you. Lee Strobel, his latest book is called The Case for Heaven, and it's an extraordinary book. And of course, his famous The Case for Christ. If you haven't already seen it, go stream that movie. You will absolutely love it, and it's a perfect movie for this weekend. You can also find him on the web at leestrobel.com. Lee, God bless. You too, Monica. Blessings to you and your listeners. Well, that was another really important show, maybe the most important show that we have done, right, guys? Thank you so much for joining me here on this Good Friday, Passover week, as we head into Easter weekend. I appreciate you guys so much. You have no idea. I also appreciate that you check out our terrific sponsors. We're all really grateful for that. All right, we've got a big week of shows coming up next week, so you don't want to miss a minute of it. Tell everybody you know about this podcast so they will also be in the know. All right, have a great and blessed holiday weekend. And I will see you right back here on Monday. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.